32, I'm going to read a little bit into the text. It says, so these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. And I'm going to read part of verse 6. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered. And we're going to come to that answer in just a moment. We come to a new section in the book of Job. And a new speaker. His name, Elihu. He will denounce Job for making the claim that he's innocent. And he will denounce Job's friends for failing to persuade Job of his guilt. Elihu bases his argument on the fact that God does not condemn unfairly or unjustly. Elihu believes Job is arrogant in his belief of personal innocence and personal righteousness. This presents a kind of conundrum for the reader. We know that God does not condemn unfairly. We know that God does not condemn unjustly. We also know that God considers Job righteous because we've read the first two chapters of the book. Something Elihu at this point doesn't know about. We also know that Job is suffering great trial. And in the next few chapters, we're introduced to a self-confessed, angry young man. And some of us know about angry young men. His anger seems to stem from, again, the friends of Job's failure to provide an adequate or sufficient answer to persuade Job of his guilt before God. Elihu has listened patiently to the arguments and the responses of Job. He's thought long and hard over all of the issues. Elihu has followed carefully from chapter 3. Through chapter 31, paying attention, hanging on every word. Some dodge the question about this issue of suffering. Elihu has listened to the arguments and the responses. He's heard Job say, why is this happening to me? What is going on in my life? How is it that I have lost my possessions? I've lost my children and I've lost my health. He wants to know about the problem of pain and tragedy and abusive relationships and every wrong thing that could possibly go wrong. He wants to know about it. And up until at least this point, there doesn't seem to be an adequate explanation. 
Some people, by the way, dodge the problem of suffering altogether by just simply saying that they don't think that suffering is real. That's what Hindus do and Buddhists. The way that they deal with the problem of suffering is they just simply say, what we will do is pretend that it doesn't exist. That problem over there doesn't exist. Those broken people, not really there. How effective is that? It's not very effective at all. Because as tragedy and pain and problems start to pile up high, we begin to discover something. That it's real. And whether the suffering is slight or whether the suffering is annoying or profound or life-changing, we all want answers to this problem of pain and this problem of suffering. And remember what we've already learned. Job is a believer. Job wants to know about the loss of his children and the loss of his fortune. He, he's been afflicted with a horrible disease and a, a disease that is so profound and so bad, it looks like he's going to die from this disease. And to make matters more complicated, Job has been living a life, not just simply a belief. He hasn't just been a person who goes, hey, I have a Bible and, and I show up to church and I do churchy kinds of things. This is a person who has engaged in a profound lifestyle of worship. Job's life has been a life of trust. Job's life has been a life of obedience. Job's life has been a life of love for God. And Elihu's argument is largely based on the idea that God uses suffering to help people turn away from sin and turn to the Lord. And so this is something of a little bit difficult or a little bit different perspective. In other words, the other people have just basically said, look, you're good, good things happen. You're bad, bad things happen. Elihu is at least going to suggest something a little bit different. And that is that God may use suffering to help people turn away from their sin and turn to the Lord. And the young man claims that he has the right to speak in verses 1 through 22. He makes a fervent appeal to Job to hear what he has to say and then believe what he has to say in chapter 33, verses 1 through 7. Elihu will lay out three charges against Job in chapter 33, verses 8 through 13. That an error has to be corrected and a picture of, of God using suffering to motivate and arouse people towards repentance. In other words, he's going to suggest the idea that maybe God is using suffering as a wake-up call to get people to, to shake them up from the life that they're living and to point them in the right direction. Remember... Job has acknowledged God's power in chapter 26. He's questioned God's justice in chapter 27. He sought God's wisdom in chapter 28. He reflected on his past life of peace and joy in chapter 29. He evaluated God's judgment in chapter 30. He looked to God's justice in chapter 31. And throughout all of that, Elihu has been listening. He's been listening. He's been hanging on every word. He's been listening and listening. He knows what everyone has said. Except who? Except God. 
the one voice that he hasn't listened to, the one word that he hasn't read is God's profound thoughts. And this becomes an important point right from the bat, right for all of us. And that is there are lots of people who want to tell you lots of things about lots of interesting subjects. And I'm going to encourage you to think about one thing. And that is to ask yourself the question, has this person listened to God? Has this person ever sat down and thought carefully and biblically about what God has to say about any given subject? And so we learn something. It's easy to think that we have all of the answers... Even when we listen carefully, even when we listen patiently. And if I were going to suggest something, that that's who Elihu is. He's the man with all the answers. He's the original Bible answer man. His speech is long, six chapters. Wearsby, thankfully, outlines the speech this way. Number one. God is speaking through me, he says in Job chapter 32, verse 8. Number two, God is gracious, Job chapter 33, in verse 24. God is just, Job chapter 34 and 35. Again, focusing on verses 10 and 12. God is great. And again, when you hear the speech and you go, God is speaking through me, that may or may not be true. God is gracious, we believe that. God is just. We believe that. God is great. We believe that. There are people who can say right things about God. And you go, hey, that's a good place to start. And you think that when a person starts a conversation about the nature and the character of God, that if they start in the right place, that they're going to end in the right place. But it's not always true. And so Elihu will approach the problem again from a little different angle. His goal isn't to prove that Job was a sinner. All the others have tried to prove that Job is a sinner. But rather, Elihu is going to take the tact that Job's view of God was wrong. Elihu is going to suggest that God sins suffering. Perhaps not simply to punish sin, but to also to keep us from sinning. And to make us better people in chapter 36 verses 1 through 5. And Wearsby points out again that the, the Apostle Paul would have agreed with that. Does God sometimes allow discipline and suffering to keep us from sinning? The answer is yes. Does God sometimes send suffering, not necessarily for sin, but to keep us from sin? I think that the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, would also agree with that. Elihu will claim the right to speak. And this introduction in chapter 32 is his long introduction. He says that he has the right to speak because he's angry. He has the right to speak because he's shown respect and deference to his elders. He has the right to speak because he's inspired and he has understanding by the Spirit of God. He thinks he has the right to speak because Job's friends have, well, been able to not prove that Job is wrong. 
And that this compels him to speak. And because he himself is impartial and fair. And that he's not willing to flatter anyone. And he won't tolerate flattery from anyone else. And so he begins with the right to speak when the conversation stops. In verse 1 he says, so these three men. Namely, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. Remember what all of them agreed upon. Job's afflictions were namely due to the fact that Job is a hypocrite. And so in their way of thinking and in their mind, Job is past the point of no return. Job, look what it says, because he was righteous in his own eyes. Pause for just a moment and remember where we are. Job has rested his case. Job has stopped talking. Job has made an oath to God and his friends. Remember, he's held up his right hand and he said, I solemnly swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me, God, I am innocent. I am innocent. And here's what he did. He basically charged God that if he is guilty of some grave sin, then come down from heaven and vindicate him or pass judgment on him. Wearsby writes, quote, the trial has gone on long enough and it's time for the judge to act, unquote. Job's answer has shocked Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar into silence. How could Job say something so bold to God about God? They must have thought that God's judgment was the next thing on God's agenda. The moment that Job said, I'm innocent, so help me, God. They're thinking that the heavens are going to open. A lightning bolt is going to come from heaven and consume Job in a pit of flames reminiscent of when Elijah called down fire from heaven and consumed the prophets of Baal. But God was silent. There was no fire. There was no response. There's no resolution. There's a famous story about a place in London's Hyde Park. There's a place called the Speaker's Corner. And we all know about the freedom of speech and how people will sometimes get up on a soapbox and they'll say whatever it is that they want to say. And a man came up. And he stood on the box and he began to ridicule the notion of God. He began to ridicule Christ. He began to ridicule Christians. He talked about the absurdity and stupidity of Christians and Christianity. And he said, I'm going to prove to you that there is no God. He took off his watch. He held it out. And he said, if there's a God, I defy him. If there's a God, I beg him. Demand from him that he send a bolt from heaven and kill me right now. And again, it's like the Jeopardy clock. Do, 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 do. And five minutes becomes four minutes, and four minutes becomes three minutes, and three minutes becomes two minutes. And at the end of the five minutes, he said, See, I told you. I gave God the opportunity to kill me, and he didn't, 
And this proves that there is no God. And a Christian believer in the crowd called out to him and said, Do you think that you can exhaust the patience of God in five minutes? But there are people who believe that they can exhaust the patience of God with their petty pride and their unbelief. We've all had conversations on various subjects. You've all talked with that man or that woman or that person who just annoyed you to no end. And then the conversation came to a close and you thought, there's nothing left to say. And this is what Elihu thinks, because there's nothing left to say. It's right for him to begin the conversation again. And he basically says, I have the right to speak because I'm angry. I'm outraged. It says in verse 2, then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, not of Ruth's family, different Buzzite, of the family of Ram was aroused. You guys are way too young to remember who Ruth Buzzy is, but that's okay. His anger was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. And a couple of things. This is Elihu's pedigree or genealogy. Buzz was the nephew of Abraham. We find that out in Genesis chapter 22, verse 21. So the writer of Job gives his name, Elihu, his father, Barakel, the region that he's coming from. He's a Buzzite. Now, so he's talking about his name, his father, his region, his family. Now, all of this becomes important because the name Elihu in the Hebrew means, my God is he. And that name, Elihu, speaks of a spiritual heritage. Son of Barakel means God blesses. And so that name speaks of prosperity, maybe even aristocracy and rule. He's from the land of Buzz. Again, for those of you who love the Bible and you're a Bible nerd, you realize that Buzz is the brother of Uz. Now again, if you've been following along in the text, Job is from the family of Uz. Job is an Uzite. (laughs) Elihu is a Buzzite. Now, all of this just basically means this. They they share a common ancestry. The names are significant because Job and Elihu have a common ancestor. Elihu is of the family of Ram, which has in part roots, if you will, that are going to turn, depending on whether or not you believe that Job is a very, very old book or a very, very young book, Some Bible scholars think that if this book is perhaps younger, that that, that this has roots in the family of Judah, according to Ruth chapter 4, verse 9, because the family of Ram are mentioned there. Some scholars suggest that Elihu has a kind of rudimentary Jewish or Hebrew theology, the implication being that Elihu is, if he is in fact distantly related to Abraham, then it could very well be that Abraham has in fact influenced his theology, his way of thinking about God, his way of thinking about sacrifice, his way of thinking about how God has revealed himself. 
And so some scholars suggest that Elihu brings to the table a heritage that the other three friends lacked. Elihu, like Job, they have a common ancestry. They have a common spiritual heritage. They both have an aristocratic position. They both have Hebrew roots. And so what Elihu is basically offering himself as a mediator. As an objective person who's willing to sort through the difficult issue and draw conclusions about what constitutes truth. Elihu is basically saying, I'm not a troublemaker, I'm a peacemaker. But when he says the wrath of Elihu was aroused or kindled, it becomes an idiomatic expression in the Hebrew language which basically says that That his blood is boiling. His anger is justified. He's basically saying that he's angry with Job. Why is he angry with Job? Because Job seeks to justify himself rather than God. Is that a justification of note? And the answer is, when you get to chapter 38, God himself says that. Would Would you condemn me in order to justify yourself? Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz have also incurred his wrath. He's angry with all of the people who have criticized Job because they claim that Job's suffering was simply due to sin. But they couldn't prove that Job was a sinner. So why is Elihu mad or angry? He's an angry bird. Why? Because Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz have been unable to prove that Job's a sinner. You know, again, remember we've, we had the, the, the statement. It's one thing to call a person something and it's another thing to prove it. In Elihu's mind, Job may have started out not sinning. But in his own mind, he now thinks that Job is sinning by accusing God of injustice. And again, Elihu correctly observes that, that God seeks to defend himself at God's expense. And so the friends could see no other reason for Job's suffering other than sin. And Job could see no other reason for his suffering other than, hey, wait a minute. I'm getting unfair treatment. I'm getting the short end of the stick. And so in Elihu's mind, Job is wrong. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar are wrong. Everyone has got it wrong. And so, some have suggested that Elihu is raging against the world. But if you were to ask him, he would state that he thinks that his anger is justified. And so in verse 3, he says, also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer. That is, they couldn't provide a verdict of guilt. Job has basically said, if I'm guilty, prove it. If I've done something wrong, prove it. If I've done something unjust, prove it. Three times we read about the wrath of Elihu in verse 3. Also against his three friends, his wrath is aroused because they found no answer and yet they condemned Job. So we read about the wrath of Elihu and his wrath in verse 2. Now his wrath in verse 3. We read about his wrath again in verse 5. So what is all of this mention of anger? And remember what I said. He's angry with Job. 
He's angry with the other three witnesses because they have no way to prove that Job is wrong. And once Job finishes his speech, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz have stopped responding. It's like they're on Facebook. Well, what do you think of this? I'm done. Conversation's over with. I'm not going to log on. I'm not going to get into this fight. I'm not going to enter into the argument anymore. I'm pretty much done. The, the friends have pronounced guilt without evidence. Job's anguished cry of why has gone unanswered. And so Elihu says, maybe I can offer some insight. Maybe I can bring a fresh perspective. But usually insight and perspective that's informed by anger is skewed. Again, Wiersbe quotes Aristotle when Aristotle says, quote, It's easy to fly into a passion. Anybody can do that. But to be angry with the right person at the right time, with the right extent, with the right object, the right way, that's not easy. And not everyone can do it. And I don't know if you've ever been angry when you're having a conversation with someone. I know all of you are going, not me, not me, not me. Wow, this is the most kind and gentle audience that I've ever seen. But he says I have the right to speak because I'm passionate about what I'm talking about. And then he says I have the right to speak because I've waited patiently. I've listened to all the sides respectfully in verses 4 through 7. In other words, Elihu, like you, have said, okay, I've been here since chapter 3. I've listened to chapter 4. I've listened to chapter 5. I got lost in chapter 6. Chapter 7, chapter 8, you've gone through the study of Job. you listened to all of the arguments. You've carefully weighed the circumstances. You've listened to all the sides respectfully. Verse 4, now because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. In other words, he's doing the common courtesy in the Middle East. That the youth wait until the elders have spoken. Age precedes youth. In verse 5 it says, When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. What? What? The conversation's over? What? What? We've stopped talking about the important issue of why of all this, this stuff is happening? Verse 6, So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. By the way, never use this passage on birthday cards to your grandma and grandpa. It's taking it out of context. But Elihu says, therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. In verse 7, he said, age should speak and 
multitude of years should teach wisdom. So he's saying all of the right things. Hey, you know what? I understand that you guys are way older than I am. I understand that you have a multitude of of years. I understand um, all of these things. And like I said, there's several things happening. Elihu waits because he's young. Elihu is angry because he can't believe the conversation has come to an end. Elihu's speech begins in verse 6. In the ancient world, like I said, it was inappropriate for a youth to express opinion or interrupt elders. Because in those days, it was very much like these days. Well, when I was your age, you probably heard that. This kid got so tired of it. This, his father said, well, you know, when I was your age, um, you know, I was doing this and that. And the son said to his father, well, when Washington was your age, he was president of the United States. <laughs> now, of course, that wasn't the response that the dad was looking for. But we begin to understand something. Under normal circumstances, you would hope with age comes wisdom. But it's not always true, is it? So Elihu says, the right to speak and the right to appeal is based on understanding and inspiration. Look what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, but there is a spirit in man. And the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. He's right. Human beings are spirit beings. He's right that the breath of God gives us the capacity to know, to understand, to be able to relate, to have friendship and fellowship with one another. And then he says in verse 9, great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. In verse 9, when it says great men, it really means old. Here, great is a euphemism for old. Old men are not always wise. And we understand that. Sometimes with age comes old wicked people, old rebellious people. Someone has said, I think it was my grandma, there are old fools and there are young fools. My granny was right. In verse 10 it says, therefore I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. What he's basically saying is, you should listen. Because I think God has given me insight into this particular subject. And by the way, can the Spirit of God speak to young people? The answer is yes. There's lots of examples in the Bible. You'll remember that Samuel, when he was a very young man, the Lord shows up and begins to speak to Samuel. The Spirit of God can bring understanding and the Spirit of God can bring wisdom and understanding in spite of youth. And so our argument isn't whether or not the young are capable of wisdom and understanding. But again, what we have to ask and answer is, is this wisdom and understanding really coming from God, from the revelation of God, from the personality of God? And so he says he has the right to speak when all the other speech seems inadequate. 
In verses 11 through 15, he says, Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. Elihu claims that he has listened carefully. He's listened intently. He's weighed their arguments. He's listened to their reasonings. He's, He's examined the premise. He's examined the evidence that they've supported. He says, I've waited patiently. And by the way, is this a good trait for a person to think Are there times in our lives where it's not a good time to argue, but it's a good time to think carefully about the arguments or about the suppositions or about the assumptions? You know, when young people, (laughs) it's funny even for me to even say that, when young people. But are young people capable of asking some pretty interesting questions? The answer is yes. I get asked literally hundreds of questions on my radio program. Would you like to know the most difficult questions I've ever been asked? They've come from seven-year-olds, eight-year-olds, nine-year-olds. And even at seven, eight, and nine, they're capable of asking really great questions. Elihu claims that he's listened carefully, he's listened intently. And by the way, again, I think that this brings out a principle. And the principle is, do you earn the right to speak if you listen carefully and when you think about things carefully? I think that that's part of it. In verse 12, he says, I paid close attention to you. And surely not one of you convinced Job, Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar, You've made great speeches, lofty statements. You've tried to support your arguments. All of them have been unpersuasive to Job. That's the claim. The rather bold claim that Elihu is making is, your arguments have been unconvincing, they've been unpersuasive, evidenced by Job's rejection of the arguments and Job's response. No one has answered Job's question or situation sufficiently or persuasively or refuted his statements or proved that he's wrong. And then in verse 13 he says, Lest you say, we have found wisdom. God will vanquish him, not man. Or, this is Elihu's way of saying, You claimed you knew what you were talking about. You claimed that you had the answer to these questions, but now you've given it up. You've left God as the only person left to answer Job. Verse 14, now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. Elihu is claiming, look, you've said what you wanted to say, but I'm not going to repeat your arguments. He doesn't basically hold true to this statement when you come. Remember, we've got chapter 33, chapter 34, chapter 35. You know, he says, I'm not going to repeat their arguments. And you're going to go, really? Then why are you repeating their arguments? He says, I'm going to answer you with my own words. I am going to present an argument that has previously not been presented. 
Elihu claims that he will speak, not repeat their arguments, but come with an original statement. Verse 15, they're dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. Elihu is basically saying, look, the old dudes, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, look at them. They're confused. They're amazed. They're overwhelmed by Job. They failed to refute Job. They've stopped talking. They have nothing more to say. But something else needs to be said. And so basically he claims the right to speak. Also based on compulsion. Look at verse 16. He says, I've waited. And because they did not speak. Because they stood still and answered no more. I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion. Verse 18, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. One commentator sarcastically wrote, and I had to write it down. Elihu spoke no truer words than when he said he was full of words. (laughs) Have you ever met someone who said, I think I have a lot to say on this subject. And boy, do they. They have a lot to say. Even though it's incoherent. Even though it's detached from reality. They have a whole lot to say about any given subject. And so this is, this is part of the point. And, and by the way, we're still listening to Elihu's introduction. He says, indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It's ready to burst like new wineskins. And again, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament understand the image that's given in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 9 about putting new wine in old wineskins or, or old wine in new wineskins. Elihu's been waiting a long time to speak. He feels like if he doesn't say anything, it's this his way of saying, if I don't say something soon, I'm going to explode. And that's exactly right. In the process of fermentation, when grapes produce gas that inflate the wine skin, we know that if the skin is dry or brittle, it will break. And so, again, in order to address the issue... Elihu is basically saying, in the event that you think that I'm full of gas, this is not me just blowing smoke up your dress. This is the Spirit of God compelling me to speak. Pause for just a moment. If anyone has ever said to you, the Spirit of God is compelling me to speak, one of two things really is true. The Spirit of God is compelling them to speak, or the Spirit of God is not really talking to them. It's not really the Spirit of God. A lot of people will often say, you know what, the Lord showed me about this about you, or the Lord showed me this about you. And again, I was, I was, I was watching a documentary. It was entitled Losing God, and it was the story of a young man who, who grew up in a church, and he grew up in a Bible-believing church, and he grew up in a spirit-filled church, and he grew up in a place where people loved him and cared about him, and, and, he, and he had a loving mom and dad, and he went to church, and he sang the songs, and, and he raised his hands, and, and he 
genuinely seemed to participate in all of the activities that were going on in the church, but something was dead inside of him. Something was empty and broken inside of him. And he, he in, in his own mind and in his own heart, he began to think that there's probably no God and, and that God isn't real and that God doesn't exist. And, and he's going through this private apostasy in his own brain. And some well-meaning person in the church came up to him and said, I think the Lord's given me a word of wisdom for you. I think God has spoken to me by his spirit. And God's told me that God's calling you to the ministry. And this young man is thinking, I'm going through a private hell. My heart is empty and dark and and I don't even believe that there's a God. Why would God a God that doesn't exist, tell you something about me that isn't even real. You see, this is why it's really, really important that, that and even this guy who's an apostate said, you, I, you would have been so much better off if you'd say, hey, you know what, I've got this impression, I've got this sense, I've got this feeling, I don't even know if it's true or if it's false. I just somehow sense that God loves you and that he cares about you and that he's trying to get through to you. He said, at least that way I would have experienced some sort of comfort, some, some measure of, of comfort. It's not helpful to tell people things that aren't true. And so it's really, really important that you do what it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, where it says, test the spirits to see whether or not they are of God. Not everyone who says that they're led by the Spirit or directed by the Spirit are led by the Spirit or directed by the Spirit. Can we give Elihu the benefit of the doubt at this point? Some of us might and some of us might not. I think what we would do is we would carefully weigh his words. He says, I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. It's his way of saying, the subject is so important. The stakes are so high. The issue's so complex and important that I need to talk about it. And look what else he says. He thinks that he has the right to speak because he is impartial. He is without bias. Look in verse 21. He says... Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man. Elihu is basically saying way before Fox News. Fox News didn't invent the concept of fair and balanced. Elihu is basically saying, I will be fair. I will be balanced. He claims that he is unbiased and that he is neutral. He is in a sense claiming that he can serve as the role of mediator, that he doesn't have a dog in the hunt, so to speak, that he isn't here to vindicate um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He isn't here to make Job the hero. He says that he thinks that, that he is without bias. And by the way, when a person says, they look you right in the eye and they say, I'll be fair and impartial. Does that, is that true? 
Is it always true that when a person says, I'm going to be fair and impartial, they will be fair and impartial? It's not always true. Sometimes people have a hidden agenda, and sometimes people do have a bias, and sometimes they say that they're not, they don't have a hidden agenda, but they in fact do have a, a hidden agenda. And the very fact that Elihu says, let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, implies that that's exactly what Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, and Job have done. That they're guilty. Often when a person says, you're biased, they're implying that they're not. But it's not always true. I think we're all filled with bias, don't you? By the way, if you believe that there's a God, is that a bias that there's a God? If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, do you have a bias that you probably believe that the New Testament is true and that what the Bible says about Jesus' life and death and resurrection are probably true? And so you have a bias that there probably is a supernatural, that if a real God can raise Jesus from the dead, then there's probably nothing that God can't do. But if you have a bias that there is no such thing as miracles, and if you believe that there is no such thing as the supernatural, and when a person says Jesus rose from the dead, for those who, who share that bias, is it, is it pretty normal for them to say, I don't believe you? In verse 22, he says, For I do not know how to flatter else my maker would soon take me away. Elihu claims to fear God's judgment against flattery. At least he's making the show of basically saying, I'm not trying to purposely feed anyone's ego or feed anyone's argument. In a sense, Elihu is making the claim that some of the previous arguments have have been offered not so much to lay hold of the truth, but rather to come to a conclusion that their opinion is really the only one that matters. But when a person makes a claim of neutrality, my advice is always investigate. Elihu claims to speak because he's indignant, angry. He claims the need to speak because he's inspired, God speaking through me. He says, I have the right to speak because I'm indignant, I'm inspired, and I'm impartial. I feel compelled. These are some pretty high claims. He says, let's look at the problem a little differently And I'm going to suggest to you that there is so much that he says that sounds so right on, so helpful, so true. He's basically saying, I'm speaking by God's Holy Spirit and I plan to do so passionately and justly. And when people do speak by the power of the Holy Spirit and they do speak passionately and they do speak justly and they do speak persuasively, it is powerful. By the way, do you realize that Paul the Apostle in the New Testament makes all of the same claims? He claims to be speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. He claims to to be speaking passionately and justly. 
So what are the dangers? The dangers are we have to examine what people say in light of what the Bible says and God has revealed. And so at this point, just ask yourself this question. Do you think Elihu is a thoughtful young man who thinks he's doing Job a favor? Or do you think he's a spiritually smug, self-righteous kid who thinks that the Holy Spirit has given him insight and wisdom into a difficult situation that the best minds available in the world at that time are unable to grasp. And no matter what you think, no matter what conclusion you draw, you might be right, you might be wrong, But whatever the truth is about what's motivating Elihu, let me ask you a different question. How do you feel when a person comes up to you and they're a spiritual know-it-all and they say, I know what God says in this matter and I know what God's spirit has to say about this matter and I know what the Bible has to say about this matter so that when they speak, whatever is spoken, it becomes the do-all, be-all end all of the conversation. We naturally recoil against such a person, don't we? None of us like know-it-alls. None of us like people who, who, who come to the conclusion, my advice, my opinion, my insight is the most important advice, insight. And again, remember what we've, what we've tried desperately to do. And what we've tried desperately to do is, has Job expanded our compassion and our sensitivity? Has Job caused us to say, maybe I don't have the answer to all of life's questions. Maybe this question really is a difficult question. And and maybe we need to look at it in light of what God says. What happens when people are perceived as smug and self-righteous when they're perceived as being more dedicated, more godly, more mature, more deserving, more privileged, more religious, more reverent, more virtuous, more wise, more sincere, more in tune, more in pleasing with God. And we begin to think, I don't know what to do. The person who claims to know things that they don't know can really do harm. And sometimes they can do more harm than good. And sometimes a person can fool himself or fool herself into believing that the Spirit has told them something when in fact the Spirit has not told them at all. So how do we know? How do we know that it's a voice that comes from God or it's wishful thinking or it's personal opinion? How do we sort through the voices? How do we learn to listen thoughtfully, patiently, Critically, how do we do that? And again, that's part of what our role is going to be, even as we look at Elihu. I think he's pretty persuasively made his case. Hey, don't I have a right to say something in this? 
Can't I offer my opinion, my perspective? He is going to say some things that are really, really true. But one of the things that I want you to do, and we're going to end, is I want you to just turn real quickly. When you come to the end of his speech in chapter 37, and for those of you who like to do this kind of stuff, I would really encourage you to read ahead. Read chapter 33, 34, 35, and 36, and 37. And you're going to probably want to read it several times. But when you come to chapter 38... When it says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and God begins to speak. I want to point something out to you. That Job, that God never addresses Elihu at all. Does that mean that he agrees with what he's saying or he is ignoring everything that he's saying? It's just something for you to think about as we continue our study in the book of Job, and we ask and we answer the question, how can I know that I'm hearing from God about what's real and what's true, about the most important questions that human beings can ask? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, Lord, we we understand That we offer opinions, we offer advice, we offer insight, we offer words, hopefully, of encouragement rather than discouragement. Lord, we know that we are capable of saying things, even if we're well-meaning, that may not be true. And yet, Lord, how do we bring caution sanity, sensitivity into our conversations with one another. Lord, how do we with humility point people and say, I don't know everything about everything, but let's see what the Bible has to say about this important issue. And Heavenly Father, again, we pray that you would give us wisdom and we're thankful for the instructions that are given to us in the book of James when it says that if any of us lack wisdom, we can ask you and you give it to us generously. That you're not looking for reasons to withhold information, but you're looking for reasons to give us hope and transformation, freedom from sin, the ability to know and love and trust Jesus. And again, Father, as we... Continue our study through this important book, Lord. We pray that we would be ever mindful, that it would make us more humble, sensitive, compassionate, generous. In Jesus' name, amen.